Welcome to episode 35 of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast, the podcast where we discuss and examine the 75 Greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016. And joining us this time around, we've got a couple of gentlemen who are here from part of that Horizon Labs group that you've heard about from Twitter and Facebook, which is an open group that comic fans are welcome and encouraged to join. And these gentlemen have not been on this podcast or, to my knowledge, any other podcast before. So let's do the introductions in alphabetical order. First, we've got Mr. Benjamin Merritt. Hey, how's it going? Oh, it's going well. And next up, Mr. Scott McElroy. Hey, Blaine. Thanks so much for having us on. It's really going to be fun to talk about 50-year-old Spider-Man comics. Everything I ever want to do in my life. Oh, yeah. Thanks for joining <laughs> us. Thank you. And for those of us who have been following the podcast on Twitter and stuff, i got to say... Uh, Scott has been out there trumpeting the podcast on a pretty regular basis. <laughs> well, I love what you're doing, man. I think it's really good to go through these 75 because I know, you know, I know it went out on Marvel.com. I wasn't unfortunately part of that ability to vote because I just missed it for some reason. I'm usually pretty good about, you know, being online and, you know, being within the Spidey fandom. So it's good to go through it. And it's introducing me to titles that I haven't read before. And some titles that are really, really near and dear to my heart. And so that's why Ben and I, big Spider-Man fans, wanted to jump on this one, the rank 35 for sure. So thanks for having us on, brother. Oh, no problem. And as some of you may have guessed from that introduction, this is a Spider-Man story. Specifically, Amazing Spider-Man issues 31 to 33, known as the Master Planner story arc. Now, at the time, the credits in comics were not as complete as they are now. So going by just what's credited in the issues... They were written by Stan Lee, with art by Steve Ditko, whether it was just pencils or his own inks. That's not listed in the comics, but I do know that he did a lot of his own inking at the time. Letters by Sam Rosen or Artie Simic, depending on the issue. The cover dates range from December 1965 to February 1966. The release dates were September 9th, 1965 to November 11th, 1965. And as we said in the introduction, this came in at number 35 in the countdown. All right, so from there we get to... You know, the basic plot synopsis and the significance. For the synopsis, we'll hand it over to Scott for reasons he will explain shortly. So I have the plot synopsis, and it was a joy to reread these books, but I'm just doing the plot synopsis based on the official index of the Marvel Universe, the Amazing Spider-Man version. This was a title that went in the mid-2000s. They put them out in comic book form. And they had indices before. They had a Spidey Index. They had an Avengers Index. They had a Marvel Team-Up Index in the 80s. But obviously, this is more complete because here we are. And this volume was 2010. So they released them in comic book form. And they had about three different titles per issue. But then later on, as you do, you put things in a trade paperback. And so now there's an Amazing Spider-Man one. There's an Avengers one. There's an Iron Man one. And they're really, really good resources they're out of print, but if you could pick them up at a LCS, really recommend them. They have everything you'd want to know about every issue. They have ancillary characters, major characters, villains, locations, where the character was beforehand chronologically, where they are next, just publication. So really good resource for any comic book fan, but especially a Spider-Man fan. So the synopsis for... ASM number 31, that's If This Be My Destiny. The Master Planner's gang performs another heist, and although Spider-Man intervenes, they escape with their loot. Peter goes to his first day at ESU, 
unaware of how ill his Aunt May is until she collapses in his presence. She is placed in her doctor's care, and Peter is so worried and dejected that he sleepwalks through the next day at ESU, taking no notice of attempts by new classmates, Harry Osborne and Gwen Stacy, to form a friendship. Frederick Foswell, the reformed big man of crime, hits the streets as Patch to uncover details on the master planner, while Betty Brant struggles with an answer to Ned Leeds' marriage proposal. Patch alerts Spider-Man to another master planner robbery. Although Spider-Man foils the attempt, the gang escapes. Meanwhile, at the laboratory where tests on Aunt May's blood are performed, a doctor laments that May hasn't long to live. Dun-dun-dun. Dun-dun-dun. Another cliffhanger. So that brings us to the second part in our trilogy, because this is the Master Planner arc, ASM 32, Man on a Rampage. From his underwater base, the Master Planner, in reality Dr. Octopus, oversees his gang's activities. Peter encounters Betty and Ned at the Bugle, nearly starting a fight with Ned to make Betty angry with him. Later, he learns from the doctors that there are radioactive particles in Aunt May's blood. Peter realizes that this is a result of a previous blood transfusion that he gave his aunt in Amazing Spider-Man number 10. Determined to save her, he heads to Dr. Kurt Connors' lab as Spider-Man, asking for help. Connors mentions the serum ISO-36 as a possible cure, and Peter sells his science equipment to help pay the expenses. However, the master planner's gang steals it when it arrives in New York. Frantic, Spider-Man rages through the city, looking for a lead, but to no avail. Finally, he stumbles upon the entrance to the underwater base and engages the master planner's goons, finally coming face-to-face with Dr. Octopus himself. After a pitched battle, Dr. Octopus flees, leaving the serum behind. Spider-Man is pinned beneath a huge pile of machinery. The walls of the base have been damaged, slowly letting in water. And what is arguably the best cliffhanger in the whole history of all of comics? Unable to lift the debris, Peter feels that he has failed Aunt May. What's going to happen? <laughs> and just a, a quick note to Marvel Mobile game players. Mm. ISO 36 is not to be confused with ISO 8. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Very good, yes. ISO 8, which... Yellow vials that you'll chase forever. Yes, the currency for pretty much every Marvel game out there, including Avengers Alliance, which I am hopelessly addicted to since for three years. <laughs> okay, so... Amazing Spider-Man number 33, the final chapter. Lying pinned beneath the debris of the master planner's base, Spider-Man recalls how he failed to save Uncle Ben. Determined to save Aunt May, he overcomes the immense weight and frees himself. Serum in hand, he fights his way through the master planner's men, defeating everyone, and then brings the ISO 36 to Dr. Connors, who completes the formula that Aunt May needs. Spider-Man brings the formula to the doctors who administer it, then returns to the master planner's base and brings in the police to arrest the gang. Peter sells his photos at the bugle, and Betty is horrified to see how bruised he is, reminding her of her brother Bennett's death from Amazing Spider-Man number 11. After selling the photos, Peter goes to the hospital where the doctors, concerned by his condition, tend to his injuries. Finally, Peter's allowed to see his aunt. She speaks his name and smiles. The crisis has passed. And that's the end. That's the end of this arc. Next up, featuring the return of Craven the Hunter, but that one didn't make the list. <laughs> right, right. How did you read these, Blaine? For the podcast, I should say, not just to review. I'm always curious on if you're reading it original, or you're reading it on a scan. For this one, I went to the GetCorp DVD ROMs. 
Got it. And you have the DVD ROM, so it's basically one DVD that has pretty much 45 years of history? Or? It is, yeah. Git Corp released two Spider-Man products. So the first was 40 Years of Spider-Man on CD-ROM, which was all issues of Amazing Spider-Man and Amazing Fantasy 15 up to about three months before the release of that set with no annuals. And I think that was up to 500, as I yeah. recall, because I, I have that CD that CD. Yeah, set. that collection went up to 500, and as I mentioned, it omitted the annuals. Unfortunately, yes, yeah. Yeah, so that's the main reason when they released it on DVD-ROM, which ran up to part of the, the Civil War story arc. I think it was the Road to Civil War issues, but not the Civil War crossovers themselves were included. Right. When, when that came out, and they also included the annuals, I picked up that one and passed the CD-ROMs on to someone I know who would appreciate right. them. Just found them a new home. Good. So that's those are the copies I was reading here. Right, right. And Ben, how about you? Marvel Unlimited. The only one that I actually own physically is 33. And we'll get into it a little later, but that's a little hard to read right now. Right. Uh, CGC would be would be part of that, right? You got to break open that slab, brother. <laughs> no, it'll forever devalue us. Yes. A lot of people don't know, but myself and Ben, you know, we're always on a quest to, like a lot of Spider-Man fans out there that you could get online and get through Facebook and Twitter. I have always been trying to find every single appearance of Spidey out there. And in the 80s, I started reading Spidey off the rack, 82, 1982, and then I went backwards, went backwards from there and, uh, you know, started filling in the runs and getting the original issues, some beat up, some in real nice condition. And Ben is doing the same thing. I'm a little ahead of Ben because I'm a little older than him. He's still kind of trying to get his collection completed on his Amazing Spider-Man quest. Books are a little more expensive nowadays, though. Yeah, in the 80s, <laughs> I was a high schooler, and I was still able to, you know, drop money for Amazing Spider-Man number one and number two and all of that. So I was I was quite blessed. I was quite fortunate that I was doing it at the time and that I didn't sell them later, you know, when I went to college and went to dental school and did all of that. So I've got all the original issues. I read this one out of the Marvel Masterworks Volume 4, the trade paperback. The Marvel Masterworks came out in hardcover first, and then they released it in softcover, and I was really turned on by all of the the black trade dress that they just recently stopped doing. They're, they've kind of changed their Masterworks format into epic collections, but some of these covers are just so gorgeous because they're nicely painted. Like I said, the trade dress looks really, really nice. If it's Silver Age, it has a silver logo. It's Golden Age. It has a golden logo. And I'm I'm reading from Volume 4, which has the cover of number 33, where he's locked underneath all the wreckage, which is one of my favorite covers of all time. And it's really nicely painted by Dean White also. So it's over the Ditko art, but it's nicely painted by Dean White. And there's also a GIF in the internet somewhere of this cover with the water coming down, which is absolutely awesome. So try to track that down, too, if you can. So when did you read the story for the first time? So the first time I read this entire arc was actually, I think Scott and I were just talking about this, it was last August. It was a drunk Pete we did. And uh, I think that's the first time that I read this entire series through. And I read it, like I said, on uh, Marvel U. And before that, I really hadn't had much exposure to back issues. I do have number 33 in physical copy, but it is CGC'd, so I don't get a chance to read that can't open that one up can't open it up no and to reiterate because i know lex pendragon one of your uh, previous guests during the 
amazing number 36 kind of mentioned what what hashtag drunk pete is it's a event on twitter that ben and i kind of came up with and a few other people on twitter that on saturdays we all get together at a certain time and read a selected spider-man comic it has to have spider-man in it and we have a beverage in this beverage does not have to be alcoholic it doesn't have to be beer it could be water i've drank water before we have some underage people who are also spider-man fans that do this and the origin of this is it's not on the ranking although maybe it should be it on should 75, be 75 it's from web of spider-man number 36 it's a 38 i'm sorry thank you 38 which is a hobgoblin issue and it's a issue where peter parker is just got getting married to Mary Jane. He's just leaving his Chelsea apartment. And so they're having a party for him. And the punch is spiked by his landlord's wife. And he goes out, drinks the punch, and he has to go fight the Hobgoblin. And he does it inebriated. And uh, Hobgoblin knows this and says, what are you doing? What are you doing drunk? And so that's, you know, and then he comes back. He obviously knows he is buzzed. And he comes back and he finds out who spiked the punch. And it's, it's a good Fabian Nietzsche story drawn by Alex Savick. And so, you know, Ben one time on Twitter said, did Spider-Man get drunk at, at some point? Because we were reading the Spider-Man Chronicle, but DK Publishing. I said, yeah, sure enough. It was Web of Spider-Man 38. And he went out and he got that issue and uh, we read it. And then one thing led to the other. And then we said, you know, we should read it together and we should have a beer, you know, while we do it. So it, it's a really good group. And it's been going on for a couple of years now, actually. We're going to have our hundredth time, you know, and, and, and it's always at a certain time. It's live tweeted that when you do the issue, you live tweet it. So obviously, you know, some people can't do it and, and that's fine. And I've missed many. I don't think Ben's ever missed one, though, because he is hardcore. I missed December 9th last year when my son was born. Pretty, that is pretty good to have that track record. And that's an excellent reason for missing it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. I was upset because um, I think Lex actually still did it with uh, maybe Bill. I can't remember. But they did Punisher. They did Punisher because it was the date. It was 12-9, which has since been tattooed <laughs> on my body. But I, I want to do that issue still. So I was active during that Drunk Pete, except I only did number 31 during that time. That was, wasn't the first time I read it. I, I was at North Carolina vacationing at that time, so I didn't have the time to do it. but. Number 31, 32, and 33, I'm 46 now, so I, I've been collecting comics all my life, pretty much. And like I said, I've been a Spider-Man fan. I've started collecting the book on December 1982. It was when 235 was on the rack. And I remember going back. And before that, I'm much like one of your many previous guests, John Wilson, in the respect that the only Spider-Man I had, and this was back when they were first published, was the volumes one, two, and three of the pocketbook, which reprinted unabridged. This was John Wilson's story too. Amazing number one to 20 without annuals. So for a long time, and this was in elementary school for me. So this is back early eighties. You know, I read one to 20 so many times when right? the cover was falling off these books. And I had the Fantastic Four one, you know, which had one through six, and I had the Doctor Strange. So I read a lot of early Silver Age that was beyond the origins of Marvel Comics trades. And, you know, Conan, they had a whole bunch. And so all the Ditko issues past number 20, you know, I had no idea. I had no idea what the story content was. 
I had no idea, you know, about, you know, I, I knew, Gwen, you know, I knew Gwen had died, you know, because that was referred to a lot when I was doing my readings. Spoiler. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. So, you know, I read those over and over. This is before even the masterworks were published because that was like even late eighties for the first hardcover. So the only way I'd read it is, you know, searching for the back issues and going, you know, and I was very fortunate all the way through high school and college to work at a local comic book store in Las Vegas. So number 31 was actually the very first back issue Ditko book that I bought from the store at a discount, of course. And I was really pleasantly surprised to find out that it had all these hallmarks in it. Like, oh, this, this is the first... ESU. This is the first time he's going to ESU. Oh, this is the first Gwen. Oh, this is the first Harry. So because, you know, we didn't have the internet back then. So we couldn't go look all this up in some Wikipedia database. So all we had were these like little, another index that was published by another company, but that was very, very scattered. So I bought that issue first and then I read it and I was like, okay, you know, put it, you know, put it in the Mylar and all that stuff. But then later when my family and I was still in high school, we were vacationing in California because we were from Las Vegas originally. And I found 32 and 33 at some comic book store in the mid California. I don't know where we were. We were vacationing and ultimately going to San Francisco. And I was always much like I am now, you know, 30, 40 years later. I'm like, hey, can we go to a comic book store? And so I found 32 and 33. And I remember I was like, Oh, this is the, this is the end of, uh, this is the end of this 31. And I remember when. I read 32 and 33. I just knew something was special about that book. I just knew something was special about the lifting the wreckage and just the fact that, you know, he was just beaten to a pulp, not, but he didn't give up. And he just still, you know, lifted that wreckage in those just gorgeous, gorgeous, like Ditko panels. So I knew I was reading something special at that point. Well, that's a much more interesting history than I've got with these. Oh yeah, so it, yours is yours is just going chronologic, right? Eventually I did that, yeah. And this was chronological as well. I originally read this in the Essentials before I picked up the Get Corp CDs and DVD ROMs. Yeah, so that was my first exposure to this. Was just Tobey Maguire movie was coming out, got me back into comics. I just started grabbing Essentials, and I don't even remember what order I picked it up in. But you know, one of these times I was out at out at the mall with the comic store that had the Essentials in stock, I picked up Essential Amazing Spider-Man Volume Two and just read it cover to cover that weekend and that was my first exposure to well, i guess the tail end of the ditko run because his right time on spider-man was coming to an end when this came out very close to an end right right this is actually his last dr octopus drawing actually was the number 32 right number 32 was the last ditko uh doc because i don't even think he appears later in floating heads you know when they do the floating heads of guilt around Pete's head anywhere. I don't think he's even in it. So that was the last time he drew it. Yeah, because his last regular issue was issue 38. Was 38, right. 38. So we are yep. five issues away from John Romita Sr. taking over the book. That beautiful Romita. That brings up also this, I know, I'm just going to gush all over these books, but I hope you don't mind. But I just love the Lee Dick. And it might be because of just, I read those one through 20 so many times when I was growing up. And I just love... Pete's characterization that Dick, because he was doing co-plotting too. So I think he was doing a lot. Stan was doing all the dialogue. Ditko was co-plotting also. And I, I just love how cynical he is because there's a lot of modern Spider-Man fans, you know, it's, it's a great wide internet. So there's a lot of, 
well, Peter Parker wouldn't act like that. He, he, he's not, oh, no, he's good. He would never do that. There's a lot of that on the internet, but people don't remember that he, he was a jerk. Peter Parker, he was selfish and that's his origin too. him being selfish. I just love how cynical he is. And, and I think a little bit of that's Ditko too, because, you know, he, talk, he just talks like a real person, like in 31, the master planners men are going down under the water and he doesn't know that they have, you know, scuba gear, you know, cause that's where the master planners base is. And he quotes, I can't just let them drown, even though they probably deserve to, you know? So, I mean, I was like, yeah, that's the way I would act. You know, that's what makes Peter Parker. He's the everyman, you know, such an everyman. It's things like that. So it is. And there's so much influence. You could tell the stamp that's on it. I can't tell you how many people, I spoke to when that first Spider-Man movie came out who didn't like the fact that Peter Parker graduated from high school. And they're saying, no, he belongs in high school. And you go back and look at the history. He graduated. And how short of a time he's in high school. He was only in high school till like probably 28 because that was the graduate. The Molten Man issue of Lee and Dicko was the one where he graduated. And so for his kind of dating the podcast, but that's why in all new, all different Marvel post-secret wars, they're going to have a book called Spidey, which is supposed to be in continuity. I think it's Robbie Thompson, who does Silk, is writing it. And beautiful Nick Bradshaw's drawn it. It's all going to be kind of evergreen stories of Pete in high school, which is good. We'll see. But as a continuity, you know, as a continuity guy, I'm, I know it's going to be hard for me to read. I'm a real open-minded guy. I'm an open-minded fan. But it's going to be hard for me to go through that and not, oh, this villain wasn't introduced until this time, you know, and just nerd out over, you know, chronology and continuity, because that's just way the way my brain works. It is. And that's that's the challenge with going back and trying to write yeah. the stories that they say dance between the raindrops, like the right. you know, the, the Spider-Man Amazing 1.1 through 1.5 that they did, because right. it's learning to crawl, learning to crawl. Yeah, yeah, you get it's that fine line to walk because. If it's going to be completely consistent with the continuity we have, well, then what does it matter? Right. Right. And if you're going to right. try to have implications, like, how do you say Spider-Man's going to die when you're saying, yeah, this fits <laughs> between issues 12 and 13? Exactly. <laughs> right. It, it's hard to get the reader engaged with an actual threat if it's not going to happen. Right. 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 And I think uh, who did that masterfully was Kurt Busiek. Mm-hmm in the, you know, right at the height of Clone Saga, Untold Tales of Spider-Man. And he was very big on continuity and chronology, too, because he put, you know, hey, this happens between number six and number seven, or this happens between this panel of number eight and this panel uh, of number eight as well. So, you know, he did a great job at that. So, you know, I'm hoping that the Spidey is is the same, but we we prob- probably not. Uh, and, you know, because Kurt Busiek was, you know, he did a great job on Marvels too, because yeah. he did that too, where he's, you know, let's look at the nascent Marvel universe in the golden age. Let's look at it from another guy's perspective and all this stuff is happening in the background, you know, which is all, and if you get the trade, you see all of the, all of the annotation yeah. at the end, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. Cause it made me want to go read those stories. Yep. Oh yeah. This, it, it did have an impact. And I've got to say at one point, it wasn't my first read through, but at one point in my comic reading history, I decided to read my entire comic collection in chronological order of publication. Oh, I made it from um, Action Comics number one up to, well, at that point, Amazing Spider-Man was in about the 60s. 
before I ended up getting sidetracked by other projects. And, you know, if your first exposure to 1960s comics, you know, any comic, if you're jumping in only familiar with what's today, they will seem dated and cheesy because the medium has grown and people have learned new things. You could see the basics of it, but you're like, yeah, there's, in some cases, you're lacking today's sophistication. But it, this, the uh, Lee Ditko Doctor Strange, and mm, uh, another story. title that I'm not going to name until we get to that episode of the podcast, because it's <laughs> coming up. But those are the ones where reading them in that sequence, you finally understand why these are, you know, so highly regarded. Like, I can read this and enjoy it now, but going back and reading, you know, Amazing Fantasy 15 and, you know, these this first few two or three years of Spider-Man in the context of what was on the shelf at the same time. Mm. Right. You got I found I had a much greater appreciation for the content here, especially since... You know, you're coming, I was coming off of about six or seven volumes of DC's Showcase Presents Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen. <laughs> Superman's girlfriend, Lois Lane, like, where they can't even get top billing in their own comics. <laughs> yeah. Right. And it was just, they oh. had a different mindset and a different mentality in those. Yeah. And it, yeah. So you could see when things started coming out with that Marvel brand, why it was so significant and why the Silver Age of Marvel Changes it from, you know, DC and a couple other players to the big two we have now. Right. And it's taken right. 50 years for people to finally say, you know what? Now we've got kind of the big three, right? Maybe the big four. Right. It's taken that much time to have serious contenders in Image and Dark Horse. Although right. going by sheer sales numbers, Archie is still king. They just distribute differently Archie's so they don't show up down. on the diamond list the same way. Right, right. I think also <clears throat> this, I mean, this story has tremendous amount of, you know, implications later. I know it's referred to a lot. I mean, especially in flashbacks, you know, just talking about uh, or variant covers talking about highlights of Spider-Man's career. Uh, lifting the wreckage is uh, is a huge thing. Also, you know, I his goons, I mean, his his master planner goons. I mean, they're direct analogs to, you know, go 50 years or less than 50 years in the future. There are analogs of all of Superior Spider-Man's henchmen when he changed his costume and started protecting New York in Superior Spider-Man number 14. When I read that, I was in like, his oh, own this way. Is like, this is just like the Master Planner. This He's acting like the Master Planner, mm -hmm. where he has, you know, he took over Spidey's head and he's acting like he did, except he's trying to be heroic. So I thought that was a, a good analog and, you know, something that you're, you know, still being respectful you know, dance a lot of the history, but changing it up a little bit. But yeah, and that influence is not just in the comics. I mean, we see that even when Peter Parker was reasserting himself during the Superior Era, it was an homage to this when he's pulling, you know, lifting the machinery. Oh. And I think we even saw elements of that in the second uh, Sam Raimi told me McGuire movie when he's up against Dr. Octopus. Even And the train scene. Yeah, there's the train scene. The train scene. The beating. Mm -hmm. And even after that, the big cataclysm when he catches that massive hunk of machinery... That's about to fall on Mary Jane, and he's there oh, saying, Mary Jane. Hi, this is really heavy. Hi. Hi. <laughs> I love that but scene. Just the, this is really heavy. When I saw that, I'm like, right. I, it reminded me immediately of, of this story arc, and I can't imagine that that wasn't deliberate. 2004, that's what exactly went through my head when I, when I saw that movie for the first time. And that's why it still remains my very favorite spider-man movie you know even though my kids say oh no andrew garfield so much he's so much cuter <laughs> you know i was like no you, you don't understand the history of the character there's so many nuggets mm -hmm. 
from and because Sam Raimi was a big Lee Dicko fan oh, yeah. too. If you read interviews, two is the truest. It's the truest to the comics. Truest to the comics. There's so many just truest to the character. There. Not only the the giving up being Spidey and you know the weight is on your shoulders, but just Aunt May's pep talk at the end of the film. The weight beating you, you know, beating you up senseless, but you could still you still never give up with that train. Mm-hmm. That train scene where he's just holding it by the webs. There's, yeah, that's just a great, that's just a great film. And it's a good testament to the Lee Dicko, the Lee Dicko run Mm -hmm. itself too, which I, is this the only, I haven't looked, Blaine, is this the only Lee Dicko Spidey besides Amazing Fantasy 15 that made the list? I believe it is, so... Is it? Okay, so it's this one, and okay. Yeah, we've got a few other Spider-Man stories coming, but they are Spider-Man Blue. There's right. Maximum Carnage. A really good story. Right. <laughs> really. Uh, the Kid Who Collected Spider-Man. Which is a great... How did we not get on that, Scott? Uh, How did yeah, we not we get on that? guest host, hopefully. I don't know. Maybe we can yeah. move them in. I'm sure someone's already taken that one. <laughs> yeah, amazing. 15, and then the highest ranked Spider-Man story is... Yes. Well, the, the two highest ranks are Craven's Last Hunt at number three and Death of Gwen Stacy at number one. We'll be here for Craven. Yeah, but yeah. Gwen Stacy ranked at number one. I'm very, very glad that The Boy Who Collects Spider-Man is on this list, because I was thinking to myself, like, is it? Like, for sure, 75 best Spider-Man stories, but as far as the 75 best Marvel stories, yes, it belongs on this list. It is a fantastic, fantastic story, and I mean, we did that for a drunk Pete. Fortunately, Scott was away. He didn't have to cry into his beer, but (laughs) it was, there was not a dry eye at the end of that one. It's the, it's so good. That's a good one. Spoilers. (laughs) <laughs> spoilers yes this story you know we have a little personal you know for number 31 i remember that issue pete enters esu which he'll he would be in esu he would be in empire state university for a long time really really long time until the until the very end of the roger stern john romita jr run and i remember you know they're in 31 you know there's a nice panel there's a large panel with Peter Parker's face in the middle and he's registering for college for the first time and he's standing in line and, you know, getting his books and making commentary about how many lines he has to stand through. And, and I remember distinctly my first day registering at UNLV, University of Nevada, Las Vegas, where I did my undergrad. I had that panel in my head. I had, when I was in line, you know, it wasn't computers, you know, when I was in line buying my books and getting all that stuff, that's the, that's the panel that I had in my head throughout the whole day. So, yay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and by the time I got to university, we registered by phone. Yes. (laughs) Just push this button. Yeah. That section is full. Would you like this section? (laughs) But, yeah, first appearance of Gwen and Harry. You know, first appearance of Miles Warren, Professor Miles Warren, who featured heavily in your clone saga. Yeah, Uh, yeah. discussion. That he did. Yes, major for many, many, many issues. <laughs> Another thing I love about reading Spider-Man, you know, modern and classic, is just so soap opera. I love the whole soap opera elements of Lee Dicko, Ramita, but even, you know, even this issue, I mean, Stan comes out and says and almost apologizes to the readers about Spider-Man not being in the book, mm-hmm. you know, for a long period of time. And he'd do that. He'd do that sometimes. Yeah. Where he said, hey, hey, true believers, we know you're itching for Spider-Man, but we still have a few more plot threads to get through. It was the romance, 
and the budding relationship with Gwen Stacy and the breakup with Betty. It's all those soap opera stuff that I'm a sucker for. I love I love that stuff. Yeah. What about you, Ben? Oh, yeah, like yeah, like it's it's the whole thing. It's 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 relatable. It's it's what you live through, it's what I live through. You know, maybe we don't have Mary Jane and Gwen both, you know, madly in love with us, but it's <laughs> it's it's not a Ben and Scott problem. But no, it's 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 uh it's it's so relatable and it, like I said he is the everyman and it's just day-to-day life with the superhero twist and that is why in my opinion Spider-Man and Peter Parker more importantly are so relatable right. and it's why he's stood the test of time. Yeah. Right. It's why I named my kid after him. <laughs> yeah. And it's I think as Scott said a lot of that comes down to the soap opera aspect. Reading it, other comics of the time we see more of Peter Parker out of costume than almost any other character. In this era, I would say that the only Marvel character, because I'm just more familiar with Marvel of the era, I'm not going to judge DC or other companies. Mm-hmm. The only other Marvel character that came close to spending this much time out of costume was Daredevil. And a lot of that is because right. under Stan Lee's pen, he was basically another Spider-Man. Just right. Right. much lamer villain, so it took a long time before he caught on. <laughs> exactly. But it took a long time, and that influence, like this style of storytelling, more so than this one story, the Lee Ditko style has had impact way beyond Spider-Man himself. A lot of people are fans of Joss Whedon and the works he's done. Joss Whedon, people don't necessarily realize, is a third-generation TV writer. His father and grandfather were both TV writers, so he had access to autographs from people all over, like the entire cast of The Andy Griffith Show, because his grandfather wrote for that. His father wrote a bunch of stuff in the 70s. The first autograph that Joss Whedon ever got was Stan Lee's, and he made his father drive him almost seven hours to get it. <laughs> and I see that this style of storytelling in the first season of Buffy, where you've got, you know, sometimes you've yeah. got big arcs boiling in the background. Like, go back to that first season, you know that, that you've got the, the master is running. I always wondered if that was an homage to the master planner, calling him the master, mm. given how much other Spider-Man influence I see on that season. But most of that season... You've got that rotating cast of characters. You've got, you know, the love life is one thing that's constantly bubbling as the backdrop for the monster of the week. And that's what keeps you engaged mm. and keeps the story going. I see a lot of Stanley and Steve Ditko influence on the writing style of Joss Whedon. And that's mm. part of why people, I think, were so devoted to Buffy because it wasn't just, yeah, here's the monster of the week. It's, no, these are people. They have lives. You know, everything matters. You know, the vampire that she stakes this week or that she dusts, may not have a huge impact on the long-term story arc. Whatever the monster is, we may never hear about again. But that comment that this one classmate made to this other classmate is going to have social implications that are going to be dealt with all the way down the line. Mm, right. right. It, it's right. that same style here. Right. And again, I just I just, I just, just love, you know, Peter Parker as, you know, Dicko did him as a, as a complete hothead. You know, also just the fact that in the number 32, Man on a Rampage, you know, as he's looking for the ISO 36, he's just beaten butt. He He's just, you know, tearing the city apart. And I love not only the Spidey aspect, but also, you know, him just being a teenager, just, you know, pushing Ned around. You know, that there was that subplot because he's trying to get out of his romantic involvement with Betty Brant because he knows he'll have to reveal that he's Spider-Man. And Betty is actually you know, doesn't like Spider-Man at all. And, you know, she knows that he can't reveal a secret to her and he's, you know, making rash decisions, you know, picking a fight with Ned. 
you know, and breaking a table in the issue, you know, part of, you know, in Aunt May's home while she's at the hospital. And I just love his I have one one little pearl. And he just acts like a teenager because I have teenagers and they act exactly the same way. He says, and I quote, talking about Betty, I'll carry a torch for her forever. <laughs> so it's just like, how dramatic, you know, being a dramatic teen and being a, and a hothead. I mean, I just, I love it, man. I eat this stuff up. Yeah. Yeah. That's, they did have the voices and it was, it, it's so easy. You know, teenagers read that and they go, that's what I'm going through. Adults read that and they're like, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, I, remember, I remember those days. I was that teenager. I, I totally was in high school, like thinking that, you know, oh, my life is over. This girl doesn't like me. <laughs> and it's the differences that we have here. I mean, like you said, this is an era where Spider or Peter Parker was not the clean cut guy that people like to remember him as. I mean, you look at the, the right. Sam Raimi movies. I mean, yeah, Peter and Flash Thompson get in a fight and Peter hurts Flash. But when it happens in the movies, right. it's early enough in his days as Spider-Man that he really does not understand the kind of damage he can do. And it was purely accidental. Yeah. Or as you go back to the Lee Ditko era, when Peter and Flash actually fight, it's far enough in. He knows exactly what he can do. And he makes a conscious choice to fight. After you crush that pipe climbing up the wall and, you know, you know your strength. Yeah, it's uh, it's safe to say you know what you can do. Well, yeah, especially since, like I said, that fight was a few issues in and it wasn't even heat of the moment. I'm going to, you know, fight you right now because I lost my temper. It's, okay, I'm going to meet you at this place in time after school. Right, he had hours to stew right. on it, and he still showed up, which is and again as as a teenager, even if you weren't directly bullied yourselves, you got to see enough bullying. It's like you know what, mm. you know, you you got the bully in the school. Maybe we we do want to see our hero take him down a notch without the mask, because Peter Parker beating up Flash Thompson will have so much more impact on Thompson's perception at the school. Not advocating that people go out and beat up bullies in their school, but <laughs> right, I'm right. saying you know if if you have been or are close to bullies. It's a very reasonable fantasy to say, yeah, I want to see that guy get the tar beat out of him. I think everybody had that. I think everybody in high school at some point or another was just like, you know what? I'd like to see them just get what they're given. Yeah. And, you know, to see Pete do that, especially Pete, you know, the the bookworm, Pewdie Parker, take down the big hotshot. It's kind of beautiful. I'm sorry. Oh, it is. Yeah. And there's many times that he almost, you know gets in a fight with Flash Thompson during, you know, when they're in high school, sometimes in college too, and he has to pull back and, you know, you as the reader is, oh, I just want to see him just cream him. And and he pulls back and, oh, I really want to, I hate this guy, you know, mm -hmm. because he's being real. He doesn't like this guy and he'd like to, you know, like to pummel him, but he, he draws back. He knows he's got responsibility. He's, he'll kill the guy. Yep. Yeah. Well, I like the fact, like, Slot, I don't remember the issue, but when Slot finally lets him loose on the scorpion and rips his jaw right off mm -hmm. with that punch. Yeah, I, I want to say that was Superior 1, but it's... During the Superior run, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and then, like, and Auk is sitting there thinking, he's like, this is what he was capable of all that time? And, why did and he, he never it? did this? Yeah. 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 yeah, that's right. Yeah, like, it's just... Right. Yeah, when he's got that, you know, he was holding back this entire time? I never dreamed. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, I've got this brain injury from him, and yet he was still holding back that much. Right. It's a guy that can bench press ten tons. Right. Oh yeah, that's right. And he, you know, and he just he he didn't have the sense of responsibility that Pete had, so he just he just went off on people, you know, which made that run really good too. I really enjoyed the Superior run, but it was mostly about trying to again going back to this arc. It was about 
oh, you know, especially after Superior Number 9 and all the buildings in the subconscious mindscape fall on Pete and he loses his memories. I'm just waiting and waiting and waiting while I'm reading Superior on a monthly or biweekly basis. I'm waiting for him to crawl out of that wreckage. And, you know, towards the when I remember the panel that Cam and Coley did when he finally did. I was like, yeah, there, there, there it is. There's the Ditko homage. There's him lifting that wreckage, yeah. you know. So I, I like that. I mean, it's, it's interesting because I remember, I remember, and that's such a great, you know, the panel layouts. I mean, you know, listeners can go back and read it on Marvel Unlimited, number 33. Uh, just lifting that wreckage just goes so claustrophobic. So he goes from a seven panel page where he's under the wreckage to a six panel page to a four panel page. So it's just getting, you know, you could just feel the weight almost lifting off of them to the final, you know, money shot, the one panel splash where he's like lifting, lifting it up and he's free. It's just, man, Dicko. It's beautiful. Dicko was just a craftsman, man. He, he, he was just absolutely amazing. No, no pun intended. Blaine, have you seen the the search for Steve Ditko? It's on YouTube. It's by Jonathan Ross, who's a British uh, celebrity. A, he's a British talk show host. He did a documentary on Steve Ditko, and I just recommend anyone. It's on YouTube. I recommend anyone to watch this because they actually search. They talk about Steve Ditko uh, in the doc, and it's really like authentic. Because Jonathan Ross is a real big Ditko fan, and then him, Jonathan Ross, and Neil Gaiman actually visit Ditko at his Manhattan studio. I won't give you any spoilers because I do want you to see it. Just trying to find him and just to interview him because as you know, he's quite the recluse. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't think any any pictures have been taken him taken of him since maybe the Bullpen Bulletins page when they were doing the uh, the Bullpen and I think it was Marvel Tales or something, annual number one, there where they helped showed Flo, Flo Steinberg and all the classic Bullpen photos. So it's a good, it's the search, search for Steve Ditko. It's really, really good. You have to track that down. That's the first time I actually heard yeah. about how hard it was to get an interview with Steve Ditko was on an episode of Word Balloon when Brian Bendis was talking about, you know, trying to talk to Ditko and the Marvel editors like, okay, here's his number, but we're not going to guarantee anything. <laughs> he's not going to. Good luck. Said, said, you know, can I interview with Steve Ditko? Said, no, he's like, okay, I'll respect that. Yep. But can I just ask that you is- one thing? Why is it that you don't want to do any interviews? Well, Ditko's response was, that's an excellent question. But it's also an interview question, and I don't do interviews. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, you gotta respect that. You gotta respect that. Just, you know, he's probably the kind of guy who's like, "Hey, I'm just gonna let my work, you know, I'll let my work speak for me, you know." And so I could, I could respect that. But it, it'd just be really nice to hear of him, you know, before he passes. So, and it's funny, it's funny too, because as far as the lifting the wreckage part, I was gonna get to this. I remember when Brand New Day in the Spider-Man titles. And when Brand New Day started, there was kind of a mandate on, hey, how do we want to change Spider-Man? How do we want to go forward with the Brand New Day titles and multiple writers? And, you know, what is this manifesto? And it's senior editor Tom Brevoort. I I, I couldn't find the citation. I thought it was I I tried to look it up yesterday in my long boxes. I tried to look. I wasn't it was an interview I read somewhere. It was at some magazine. I thought it was a Marvel Spotlight at the time and I looked and it wasn't. But Brevoort had a condition that says, hey guys, hey writers, you know, let's not show Spider-Man lifting stuff anymore. It's kind of a story trope. You know, let's not do that anymore. And I I remember when I read that, 
I was a little miffed just because I think it's it kind of defeated the whole purpose. I, I understand if you do that over and over again in 50 years of a character's, it gets old. It gets old. But it's really the symbolism behind that in the fact that, you know, you could beat him up. And this, you know, this this goes, you know, right into deeper meanings, you know, too, if we wanted to talk about that. Blaine is that that whole lifting the wreckage is more like the whole moral of this. You never give up. No matter what life, what life does to you, you never give up. You, it could beat you down, but as long as you have breath, you like in your lungs, you keep fighting. You keep, you keep going. And we'll see this in future episodes of this podcast too with Spider-Man. And I want to quote one thing that he said. This is a quote from Peter Parker. It's from issue 33 and Page 10, panel 6, he says, A man may lose, a man may be defeated. It's no disgrace as long as he doesn't give up. That's cool, man. That's 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 so cool. That's something that, you know, just personally I could, you know, take on a daily basis. I hear Uncle Ben saying that, though. You know what I mean? Like, that's Uncle Ben. That could be, yeah. And that's true. And that's plenty. There's a lot of times when, you know, all those floating heads around Spidey, you know, around Pete that I love too. I love when they show floating heads of guilt, whether it's like, oh, I've, I've let someone down or, or, you know, words of encouragement, you know, now there's some floating heads in that, in that issue as well with Ben and with Aunt May lying on the bed or lying in her hospital bed before he's lifting. Cause he's thinking about him. Uh, you know, that's a, that's a good, those are words of encouragement that definitely would come from uncle Ben. I think, you know, they've retconned and they've done flashbacks of, you know, Uncle Ben's speech to him and all that. Yeah, but as as for the deeper meanings and the messages and morals in here, that's mm-hmm. really the same one I got. I mean, you can right. look at uh, the way he's interacting with Betty, which is almost that, you know, if you love someone, let them go. Like he's... Ah, yes. We talked about how Peter Parker in this era especially can be very selfish. Mm. The way he's treating Betty is not selfish. He's saying, I am not good for her. This cannot work out, you know, but it, if I dump her, that may be in a rough spot for her and Ned. I need her to cut me loose so that she could move on to a healthy right. relationship. Right. And that's one thing that I'll give a lot of credit for. Another one I think goes back to Steve Ditko and it's very subtle. But when I did read these chronologically on the DVD ROMs and again, reading them in context of what was contemporary at the time with a lot of them on these mm. color DVD ROMs, Great way to do there it. are very few African American characters represented in comics at this time. And yet the entire time mm. Steve Ditko's on pencils, you will consistently find African-American characters in Amazing Spider-Man. A lot of them are not mm-hmm. prominent. Sometimes they're just other students. Sometimes they're in the background, but they are there. This time, it's actually Aunt May's doctor is mm-hmm. an African-American individual, which I was really happy with because they were so rare at this time. And now it's, okay, you know, generally speaking, the doctor in the room is one of the smartest people in the room. This is not an easy right. job, just the sheer volume, yeah. not right. just straight fact recall. But also analysis you've got to do to be a successful doctor. Those are two skill sets, and a lot of people have one or the other. Right. And making him an African-American is like, yeah, okay. He's doing his damnedest to treat him as equals in a biased editorial age. Yeah. And one of the reasons I attribute it to Ditko is that when Ditko leaves the book, that kind of goes away for a while. Until... Yeah, up until Robbie Robertson. You know, and that's, uh, you know, a few more issues into the Ramita run, you know, where he's introduced as a as a major character and also a character of some power too. Yeah. You know, he's a city editor, he's city editor. So he's a, he's a journalist and uh, he's right underneath J Jonah Jameson. Yeah. I was surprised to see that too, actually doing a reread, 
seeing yeah, oh there there are hospital workers here there are actually people doing ivs for you know aunt may uh who are african-american that, that was really good that's really ahead of its time mm-hmm. too oh yeah and it's i mean one more kudos and or feather in the cap of joseph robertson which is we talked about a little bit in the clone saga but i do like the fact that he and captain stacy are the two that are strongly implied to have figured out that peter parker was spider-man Right. Just the look of complete right. shock on his face when he sees Peter and Spider-Man standing side by side in the Clone Saga. It, the creative right. team are basically saying, yeah, he's never said it, but he knows what's going on. He's put the pieces together. And that's I, I did like that he was the other guy to do that. Right. So Excellent. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, Ben, Ben, did you have anything to add to Deeper Meanings? Is there anything that you caught that we missed? Is there anything that I caught that Scott missed? I don't think so. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Have I mentioned how much I love these books? <laughs> these are these so good. Yeah, they're there's a lot. They're referred to a lot. And uh, I just had a few more a few more notes. Um, Doc Ock's underwater lair, which is real prominent in this, uh, also makes an appearance in the Infinite Runner mobile game, Spider-Man Unlimited. So that's another game that I'm, uh, you know, we were talking about gaming before we started. That has an appearance. And um also, a real good, one of my favorite animated series with Spider-Man. He's been in a lot since 1967. Spectacular Spider-Man, Season 2, Episode 4 from 2009. It's called Sheer Strength. That has a direct lifting the wreckage part of it. It's the Master Planner. A few things are changed. Uh, you know, he's trying to save Gwen Stacy at the time. And uh, Electro's part of it as well. But real good scenes. Doctor, Dr. Octopus is still the Master Planner. And there's still a really good scene of him being crushed with wreckage and almost giving up, wonderfully voiced by Josh Keaton as he lifts it up. And, you know, when I saw that back in 2009, I was like, yep, Greg Weissman, who is the director of of that show and the main showrunner, he really had a good appreciation of Ditko Lee and Lee Ramita in that that two-season animated series, which was awesome. Oh, yeah. Weissman has had a phenomenal track record for animation in general. Oh, yes. There was actually a few things, like, that when I was going through the book that, like, I think you had pointed out in, um, uh, I think it was the Valentine's Day one you did with your girlfriend. It was the in 21st Annual? Yeah. Yep. Right? Yep. Number 21. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and you were talking about how the fact that Shooter was the writer as well as the editor. Or he did. Ed- he was the editor, so if he wrote something, no one could veto it. And there's a couple things in this book, like, I think, it, where is it? I don't know. In one panel, they refer to the helicopter as a plane, and then it's back to a helicopter again a couple pages later. And it's just kind of one of those things where Stan Lee was very, you know, Spider-Man is my baby, and no one's going to, you know, change anything that I say. So maybe had he not been such a control freak with Spider-Man in the beginning, he wouldn't have been Palmer Spider-Man and flying helicopter planes. Right. He was writing a ton of books, you know, at that Yeah, oh, for sure he was. And and this was also the point that it was late enough in his relationship with Ditko. I mean, we spoke earlier about how Ditko was co-plotting. By this end, he was doing almost all of the plotting. So Ditko would pencil and ink the issues and a lot, generally ink them. Um, And from what I understand, he would hand them into the Marvel offices at the last possible minute, knowing full well that meant Stan would just have to dialogue whatever Mm -hmm. Ditko drew and could not ask him to go back and redraw. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think we're in the area where it's not so much co-plotted as did co-plotted and Stanley's contributions to the plot yeah. were because 
his time crunch, it there's a few issues there where it feels like he's adding dialogue as he's turning the pages. Mm. So he's yeah. putting dialogue on page one before he's seen page ten. <laughs> that's the only option he has. So you get some inconsistencies creeping in because that's that was the time frame that Ditko left him with. Just so Ditko's art would be Ditko's work. And the only thing, other thing that I want to mention is as I was going through this doing a little bit of prep the other day, I'm reading it on my iPad, and my wife looks over, and on, you know, issue 31, page 2, on the bottom, uh, let's see, the bottom right-hand panel, tell me that's not a Cyberman from Doctor Who. Because <laughs> that's the first thing my wife says. My wife says, Spider-Man fight the, fought the Cybermen? <laughs> that's hilarious, man. Yeah. This is, uh, was this pre-Doctor Who, or I forget, what's the... Uh, I think the same, they're the same age. Well, yeah, because uh, Doctor Who was the when Kennedy was assassinated, right? Was it the same air date? Doctor Who, the premiere date was November 23rd, 1963. So it, it was preempted by coverage of the Kennedy assassination. The Cyberman first appeared in story number 27, The Tenth Planet, early in... It was actually, was it season three or four? But it, yeah, it was uh, 1966. Nice. It was okay. the, the fall yeah. of 66 because the Cyberman premiered about five weeks after Star Trek premiered, the original series. And this is 65. Yeah, yeah so this is 65. Awesome. So it's about yeah. a year later, later when huh? the Cybermen show up and start telling people, you will be upgraded, resistance is useless. <laughs> I just love how you... I just love Blaine how you never you didn't even have to Google that. You just knew that. That was just part of your CPU already. That's awesome. Yeah, well... <laughs> If the Doctor Who episode is known to exist and is available to the public, I own it. I own it. That's awesome. Anyway, so I think all we really have left to discuss is why it landed at this point in the countdown and then mm. moving on to what we have for next week. So I think we've strongly alluded to why it landed here. I mean, we've got three criteria. We've got, is it an entertaining story? I think we'd all Absolutely. say yes. Yes. <laughs> um, the second criteria is... You know, does this have a lasting impact? Do we see, you know, homages or direct references or sequels showing up down the road? And yeah. resounding yes. Yeah, we've got Miles Warner, we've got ESU. We on oh, top of the homages, we've got right. the first introductions of a number of elements. Quite and Harry. Yep. And then number three, is there a message or moral or meaning that we can get behind? And this is one of the messages. I mean, you you say that the never give up never surrender thing is going to show up later on in other spider-man stories that's not just spider-man stories i'm, I'm looking at the list mm -hmm. here right we are going to see elements of that you know don't give up keep pushing forward mm -hmm. you know we are going to see that coming up in oh let's say episodes 31 29 mm. 28 27 26 25 mm. 24 <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's just that's amazing it's a yeah. very yeah. common theme in superheroes is, yeah, the odds are stacked against you. That doesn't mean you stop. Right, right. So that, that, that just gets your heart. I mean, that just gets, as a human, that just gets your heart. So that's probably why, yeah. you know, that, that's why these ones past, you know, uh, rank 50, you know, are getting a lot more of those themes because that, that's what makes them the favorite. That's what makes them, that's what made them click that button to vote for it. Mm -hmm. I mean, Spider-Man Clone Saga... I question whether that belongs on the list. It's better than its reputation, right? but I don't know if it's really Marvel's top 75. I don't mm. believe it is. Right. This belongs in the top 75 at some point. It belongs in the top half of the top 75 as it is. Top 20. <laughs> top 20. 
Spider-Man, Amazing Spider-Man could have ended after 33, and no one would have been mad. It, it could have. Like, I mean, you, you, he gave his best, and even if he couldn't lift it, it still could have ended, and people wouldn't have been mad. It was, it's perfect encapsulation of the character, right? Yeah, just yeah. absolutely outstanding. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This Even looking at the stuff that's above it, a lot of the things that are higher ranked on the list are higher ranked because they are such massive touchstones for continuity more so than their messages or their entertainment value. One of the reasons I'm really happy with the, this particular podcast format is it's already been cherry-picked. I mean, I, I, yeah. I love a lot of the chronological ones. I mean, Fantastic Cast is an excellent podcast. Right. But just because of the format, sometimes they got to sit down and read through a clunker or yep. two or 34 in the case of Strange Tales. But, right. Yep. And that would have been, yeah. I know, and that would have been the, the scenario with John Wilson's... Uh, Amazing Spider-Man classics, you know, they got to about 48 or 49, all really good stuff. But, you know, eventually you're going to get to, you know, some some hypno hustler. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A lot of these formats, they're, they're going to have limits. Yeah. Right. Yeah. One of the nice things about this is every episode in principle, they get better and better and better. Right. Right. That's awesome. Making it a lot more enjoyable to go through this than. I imagine some of the other right, ones would be at right. this stage. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, I think we could definitely make a case that it, it belongs higher. I think at that point, how high it goes depends on how much weight you put on first appearances and, and things like that. Well, anyone that's, you know, the death of Gwen Stacy, I think the fact of how expensive one tw- ASM-121 is, like uh, on eBay, say, for example, mm-hmm. speaks volumes for how important that kid that was the death of the silver age a lot of people say you know when when gwen stacy died so her first appearance i'd I'd put a lot of stock in that as well as you know harry osborne right right i put i'd I'd put a lot in that so yeah like i said top 20 top 20 somewhere i I would agree with you (laughs) let's say my favorite number 25 it's it's number 25 right there. it's true (laughs) we we do have a problem (laughs) and for those who are curious there's a currently a CGC-rated Amazing Spider-Man 121 Near Mint 9.2 on eBay and can, converted to Canadian dollars, as I see it, $1,041.21. Pennies. Oh. Now, do you have that one, Ben? Is that on your 121? list? You have 121? Yeah, I got 121. Remember after Drunk Pete, I I, uh, I went on eBay and bought 122? Oh, that's right. I totally forgot about that. <laughs> and then I'm not, I'm not allowed to go on eBay after Drunk Pete anymore? <laughs> Ben's not allowed to go on eBay after Trunk Pete. Yeah, because he's just going to spend lots of money on old old Silver Age comics. <laughs> yeah. That's good, because I'm, I'm looking at another copy right now that's rated 9.6, and it's at $2,619.40 with 22 watching. Oh, Ooh. man. I, I, better stop. I better stop reading mine. <laughs> yeah. Since, since we're talking about CGCs and, you know, Amazing Spider-Man... My 33 was uh, signed by Stan Lee when we met him. I got my wife to take it and get it signed. Anyway, no idea what it would come back at. It came back at 9.2, and it's signed by Stan. So hopefully someday, you know, that book will uh, put Pete through at least one year of college. Yeah, at least one year. It depends on where you go to college. But that's awesome that you did that one because that's my – I love that cover. Me too. Yeah, it's amazing. And I mean – you know, if I got my arm signed, she got my favorite comic signed, so. <laughs> awesome. All right. So, in that case, I'll just thank you guys for joining us. Oh, thank you, Blaine. Thank it's you been, for having it's us. It's been a blast, man. I love talking about this stuff. 
Love it. Thanks. Uh, for those of you reading along at home, join us again next week as another member of Horizon Labs comes in to discuss Avengers Ultron Unlimited, which is uh, issues 19 through 22 oh, of the Kurt Busiek, George Perez reboot. It's been collected in the Avengers Ultron Unlimited trade paperback, Avengers Assemble Volume 2 hardcover, as well as the Git Corp DVD ROMs, Comixology, and Marvel Digital Unlimited. So please feel free to rate this and any other podcast that you listen to on iTunes or Stitcher. It really does help them get noticed. Feel free to join us in the Facebook discussion forum that we have for the podcast, or even just share the links with people who you think might be interested. And finally, thank you for listening. Are you a geek? Do you like comic books? Love technology? Into computers? Or maybe science fiction? Then the Radical Geek video podcast is for you. I'm your host, Bill Horsecotter, and I will show you the, both the fanish and technical sides of geekdom. So check it out at www.radicalgeek.me.